To Lorcana Cast, the happiest podcast in the world where we talk about Disney Lorcana, the trading card game that's coming out in just a couple weeks in August. Oh my gosh, it is so exciting. And this week's episode is going to be packed with all kinds of really interesting designing card information. So we have got Chris Bates with us. How are you doing, man? Awesome, man. Awesome. And then we have a very special guest. We have Sasha, who has worked with Flesh and Blood as a card designer. Uh, he's also worked on other projects, but we are going to get to poke his brain about just kind of games in general. So, Sasha, how are you doing this evening? Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Um, you know, super excited to talk to you about all things Locano and game design. That's what we're here to do. Awesome. So for people who don't know anything about Flesh and Blood or yourself, why don't you give us a nice introduction so we all get to know you a little bit better? Cool, for sure. So Flesh and Blood was a card game that was released at the tail end of 2019. Uh, one of my close and longtime friends in the training card game community or, you know, genre, I was a designer and developer there. And he hit me up saying, hey, we're making this game. Check it out. I did. Fell in love. Played it. Competed. And then eventually pitched my way onto the, you know, the roster joined as a business development manager, expanded the business, obviously have trading card game roots and design interest and, you know, qualifications and all that stuff, you know, edged my way into development, into design, did some stuff. And then I've since exited and now I'm focusing on my own projects. So yeah, pretty exciting. That is really exciting. Now let's go backwards a little bit more into your own personal history and talk about what got you into not only playing games at such a high level, but just playing games in general. What What's your story on, I want to play trading card games at such a great level and then eventually work in designing them? Well, the reason I kind of got started with trading card games in general is mainly because of my younger brother, just something to do around the house. We would collect together, trade together, and that kind of like fostered the, the spirit, right? And then it really kicked off once I went to my first pre-release when I was like 10 years old for Champions of Kamigawa. And then just the whole scene of, whoa, this is what tournaments are like. And, you know, as you kind of grow older, you get more and more into it. You have access to more resources to get like the cards you want rather than just the random things in the booster pack you get every two weeks. And yeah, it kind of devolved from there. I qualified for a pro tour very, very young at like 17. I, I went there thinking this is the only time I'm ever going to get there. I fluked it. And then, uh, you know, I managed to repeat it year over year and just got hooked. So mainly passion, really, and just like borderline addiction, whether that's healthy or not, is where it kind of landed me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so cool. And then finally, what kind of games are you playing right now? Are you still in the trading card game space? Are you doing any kind of, you know, board games or video games? Uh, for sure. So like I, I play with my brother every week uh, remotely. I'm currently in Auckland and he's currently back in Sydney. But uh, I'm moving into Sydney again at the tail end of the year. But right now what I'm playing like in paper is my own projects. I don't really have time to play any fab competitively or anything like that right now. Very, very cool. All right. Well, then let's kind of dig into your experience with designing card games. So specifically Flesh and Blood. What does that process look like? Because 
a lot of people who are looking at Lorcana or any trading card game in general, they're they're looking at it from the consumer side. They're looking at it from here's a release date, here's some spoilers, here's some cards, here's some rules. But before that ever gets revealed to the general public, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background, like way, way, way in advance. So what what is designing a set look like when you're on that back end actually putting in that work before anything really gets revealed for the the people who want to consume that information that's a loaded question and i don't think there's one correct answer or even like a an answer that can give that has a lot of insight without revealing too much behind the hood of what happens in the studio okay effectively what is a goal with each card because a set is just accumulation of cards right and a set has multiple purposes as well. Is it supplemental? Is it meant to be drafted? Do we want to impact the meta in a certain way? Like, do we want to, you know, kind of like how we were speaking a bit earlier off, um, you know, the recording, how the fab metagame kind of slow right now? Like, is that something that's intentional? Is that tweaked by bands or living legends or cards that are injected? You know, all these metrics, a lot of things to consider. It's very, very complicated. It can be top down or bottom up. Do I want to create a cool big arrow, a cool like, you know, sword to swing? Or does it need to functionally like work in a certain way? It's a very complicated process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that actually leads to one of my favorite questions I love to ask designers. Are you a top down designer or a bottom up designer? And for people who don't know what that means, correct me if I'm wrong, but top down means you are looking at a theme and then you're attaching mechanics to said theme. Whereas bottom up is you have a mechanic. I want a card that does this thing. And then you find a a theme or a character or a piece of art that helps resemble that. And most mechanical, most people who design cards come from one of those two aspects. Hey, I want this this card to be super thematic. I want it to be magical and big and then really cool. And then some people come at it very mechanically with, I want this card to draw two cards and you take two damage. Ah, how am I going to make that look cool? So like, what is your personal preference between those two things? Preference? I like bottom up because it's a challenge, but top down is really rewarding because I feel like you get the the gist, the vibe, the emotion that you're trying to evoke way easier. Bottom up is definitely harder to nail on the head though, which is something that I like to strive for. Okay. Okay. That's super awesome. Chris, do you have any questions? Yes, yeah, Asha. What um, sets, let me know if you can't share something, but what sets for uh, Fab did you work on? So the set that I had the biggest amount of input was definitely Dynasty. Okay. Uh, I kind of like front loaded effectively majority of the set. Uh, I had impact on uprising and minor impact on all the other sets to some degree but definitely dynasty i had a, a large hand to play and is there a, a card or a character or a hero you can share that you worked on that you enjoyed the most working on so yoji is one that i think mm. that got printed like one-to-one from when i submitted in design mm. um, it's hard to know exactly because they shift so much and mm-hmm. i can't really claim ownership it's like a team effort right but uh I think Yoji is definitely one that I think went one-to-one. I think maybe he added one life or one resource cost or some rules, like asterisk thing as that changed. But yeah. Generally, you know, and I'm not talking about Fab in particular. I mean, obviously, a lot of your experiences don't don't Fab, but you've also played other games. I think our listeners would be interested in, in just generally, how do you test these cards against each other like how do you now i'm not asking for fast person though you know what they're doing but like what like you, you just imagine a set releases with what is it 290 cards i don't know 200 plus cards how are you balancing these cards in that set with with get, cards that have been out for three years you know what what does that process look like at a high level and, and can you extrapolate what that may look like for Lorcana? it's super loaded question like i kind of <laughs> tweeted about this recently about 
card balance and design and making changes. And right. it's kind of an impossible task to nail on the head, but you have to do your best because the impact of like messing up is really, really large. Mm-hmm. Um, so with each thing, the goal first and foremost is to have fun and make the card be enjoyable to play. Like right. the the worst case is that the card is unfun and it ruins the experience for people and you have to address it. The middling case is that it gets ignored and that your efforts are wasted. And the best case is people play with it and enjoy it. Yeah. So the, those are kind of like the tenets and the goals. And also they have to fit thematically. Do you want to seed something in the future? Are you addressing an old problem elegantly without having to do those nasty things like banning, eroding, or blah, blah, blah? Yeah. How does that translate to Lorcana? Lorcana is built on a very, very strong foundational rule set. Uh, so I think they've got a lot of like, you know, ground to stand on shoulders to climb over the giants to actually see okay we can kind of evaluate this like that and dodge a lot of um, risk compared to like a system like fab which is completely in its own world and they're trying to figure it out like a magic draft set the formula has pretty much been there for like the last you know 15 years or so they've they've Mm -hmm. cracked it but with fab they're, they're still trying to figure it out i think like yeah. they're still trying to experiment and kind of see what works. I mean, you just touched on that, but like, what, so comparing what, what differences do you see between Lurkana's base rules and, and Fab when it, you know, the Fab's general base rules? So I would differentiate the games cleanly from their resource system. Uh, I think that's kind of the way that um, games or card games in particular are defined, like the win condition and the resource system. And then everything mm-hmm. else is kind of like catering off those two things. So like Lurkana is an incremental resource system, which is like racing to a condition whether it's reducing life total or gaining law, it's effectively, you know, moving a number up or down to a certain point to get a result. Um, and fab is, uh, it's not incremental. It's kind of like, I wouldn't say dynamic, but it's uh, no real word for it. Kind of like a, a repeating pattern, like, um, right. yeah, velocity type game. Fab is definitely unique in in many respects, um, which is what draws a lot of people to it, right? Um, also very complicated. I think that you know, I don't know, I don't know if you would agree with that statement or not, but it, it seems and not. It's not. It's not. A, I don't say that as a bad thing. I don't say that Locana is a less complicated game than Fab is, is. I don't see that as a bad thing. That I think the marketplace needs different types of games, right? And I like what you said about it being more of a a traditional formulation of of card game, right? So they they can build off something that's already been around um, rather than Fab is still struggling. The not struggling, it's doing well, but still finding its own place in the in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I really like what you said there. And I think it's a good point. Like, is Fab too complicated or is Lokana just too familiar? Like, yeah. Yeah, just look at the first Ooh. turn decisions you have Ooh. with Lokana. Is Lokana, you have like seven cards to put down and then one card to put down. So mm-hmm. that's like, you know, seven times six potential options. Where with Fab, you have four cards. How many pitch to play? Um, it's like, you know, four to the three. Like, you could argue that Lokana is more complicated, but the options are hmm. kind of um, constrained and just more familiar. So we actually can gauge it, the complexity quicker. That's a great, I've never, that's a great way to look at it. I love the way you think this is going to be a fun episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Okay. So I want to ask a question more on the design aspect, not necessarily the mechanical aspect, but uh, when you're, when you're tasked with a design, be it flesh and blood or your own personal project, do you like to work on your designs in like a blue sky kind of mode where anything is fair game and then you start to slowly whittle things down as you go or do you try and start off the gate with you know somewhat balanced mechanics and somewhat fair car design and then tweak it to make it more thematic or more fun as you go because everyone has such a unique design aspect and i want to learn more about the way you start off with your designing process so 
ideal scenario is that you can spend as much time as you want in the blue sky. But uh, the way that I kind of work is that I have some core tenants, which I believe in, which make card games fun, which is making tense decisions, uh, being able to play the cards, not having too many restrictions or putting them in scenarios where they're cookie cutter. Like, for example, Pulverize in Flesh and Blood, that's a very niche spot. Like you can reserve some slots for those type of cards, but too many. And also the cards kind of have to be impactful to how the game plays rather than like, you know, cards that just do one damage and that's it. They're not very exciting, but they're good for baseline for context of other cards. Like cards are only exciting if they have unexciting cards to be compared against, which is kind of this other weird thing you have to balance. Mm. I I think you just want to, usually the way that it works for me is that you have this grandiose idea of like, I think this is going to be a really cool way to evoke this type of emotion. Let's go down this path. And not just for the person playing it, but for the opponent who's like, you know, has to interact with it or deal with it or whatever. So piggybacking on that, how important do you think it is for a trading card game to evoke emotions from players, both the person playing the card and the person on the other side going, oh, that's awesome. Uh Oh, how do I overcome this problem? Uh, I think that's the entire point. Like if you want to just kind of take it back to like the, the root level, like what is a game? A game is like an activity in where we pursue to have fun. And then what is fun? Fun is like uh, evoking like a positive emotion that we want to repeat. That's kind of just something that's spitballing off my head here. And anything that's kind of not doing that, it's even like dead air or feeling it or, you know, ramping up to build fun somewhere else. Like I said, like weak or like, you know, unexciting cards to make the exciting cards like cool and powerful. When when you say that, how does a theme of a game fit into that? How does the theme of the game connect to the mechanics? So massively. So like the theme ideally should provide a point of tension or climax. So like in Fab, not, or I guess even Lorcana too, like when their opponent is one point away from winning or like like killing you or whatever, that last point matters so much more because the stakes are so much higher. But like for the last 20 turns, you've traded one damage each turn or gained right. one more against each other. Like so... The theme or whatever the objective is, it really sets the the premise of when do I need to care and be really excited or really cautious or whatever else the you know emotion is trying to be evoked. Like for me, Fab is trying to evoke like tension, even fear to a certain point of mm-hmm. like I'm mm-hmm. one point of way or I'm really close, like some amount of excitement. The one thing I will say about Fab that you know still draws me in, even playing you know for three years now, um, almost four years, is that you can look back and like like you said, like the early game you might be taking you know, four or five points of damage, you know, one point of damage here, they will sneak through, but you could trace it back, you know, your turns back to letting that damage in to a reason where you're in a bad position now, right? So that's, it really is a game where, you know, sometimes it's hard magic to, to figure out, you know, where you went wrong, I think. And Fab is really one that keeps it, you know, if you, if you get to those competitive levels, you can see like, well, okay, this is where I, I missed block there. I missed this, right? You know, it's not, it's, I don't know why. It may, I think it's a design thing where it really is, you know, that tension is always there of this is where you got behind that race, that damage race, right? And and somehow you have to either, you know, block it out to, to come back, to save up your cards, to, to try to make a desperate measure to get back in, or you're not gonna you're not gonna get back in. So that's that's one thing I've always enjoyed about Fab is that tension is palatable. You can always see it there. And it, it just increases that much more when you're down to, you know, the game being over, right? They're swinging for lethal every time. Yeah, totally. I think you hit the, the nail on the head there, which kind of alludes to one of those core tenants I have, which is make tense decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Fab, when you lose or have a negative outcome, uh, you can trace it back to you not doing something at a certain period of time. 
or compared to like linear resource games like Magic or even Lorcana to extent, if I um, didn't draw the two drop or the three drop, that's not a decision that I made. You could argue I made it in deck building by not having a certain amount of two drops or I did a mulligan properly, but it doesn't resonate as closely as I had the thing in my hand that I could have done and I didn't. So Fab mm. definitely hits tension correctly there or better there. I was going to mention too, like I think, you know, there are some cards in Fab that break that rule a little bit, which is like, you know, that, I think that's why those power those cards become the standouts in the community as, as cards that are overpowered or whatever, because, they you know, then then they, they speed up the game in a way that seems like it's breaking that tension, right? So I think right now Codex, the various Codexes are, 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 oh, are yeah, some of the people who are playing a lot. You know, Art of War has historically been a card that's very, you know, well, I don't want to say historically, but when, even when it first came out, it wasn't that popular. But it got over as over time, it's gotten just that much that much stronger. So um, I, I, don't, I don't, this is a fan podcast, obviously, but I just hear you talk. <laughs> it just makes me think of like, sometimes those, you know, the, the, that Fab has had an issue with some of these, these cards breaking that tension, right? And I think that goes to, the, again, the balance of the game. Still, one of the most balanced games I've ever played in my whole life has been Fab. Um, I think they've done a great job with the various systems they have. But it's, again, you're getting to a point now, I don't know, there's, what is it, thousands of cards? I don't I mean, a couple thousand cards. So it's um, getting to a point now where there's, like, I can't even imagine the, the type of, you know, how you play test that many cards against each other. Yeah, uh, it's like we're all kind of walking, living encyclopedias of interactions. It's You just get into that state when you're part of the development that is just... It's bizarre. It's wild. And also being TCG veterans, we've kind of just been living in that state for 10, 20 years already. So um, mm-hmm. it's kind of familiar and very unique. One thing I do want to bring up though, like it does go both ways in regards to tension. Like in, in Fab, if you don't draw the blue, um, then you can't deploy your hand. At least you have like the safety net of defending, which isn't really tension. It's kind of just a fallback, which is... Like, whereas Lokana, I think the resource system is arguably better because no matter what, you get to choose to put the card down, but then there comes like the inkless cards, right. which is, you mm-hmm. know, depending how risky or more powerful they want to make the inkless cards really depends on how much variance because you could like look at how magic's structured and just have only 16 cards that you can ink at some point if the inkless cards are powerful enough that they kind of disrupt what the power level and curve is, mm, which right. is like one of my major concerns with Lorcana on the long, long term. But I would just have to see how we get there, especially because a Lorcana mulligan system is like, I think, overpowered and kind of busted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That uh, French mulligan is really strong. Oui, oui. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to talk to you about a very classic discussion amongst trading card game players. And it's exactly what you were talking about when you said that in order to have a card that is extremely exciting and extremely impactful, you also have to have a card that is not exciting or impactful so that you have a measurement there's there's been a conversation for years about you know magic Yu-Gi-Oh, pokemon trading card games why do designers make vanilla cards that just don't really do anything and is that just a necessary evil for trading cards that you have to have cards that are slightly less interesting slightly less impactful so that way you can create tension and excitement and evoke emotions with cards that create impactful experiences for both you and your opponent to quickly answer, is a necessary evil? Yes. Is it done in the best way every time? No. Like, I ah. think you can definitely make it so, like, the wounding blows or the yeezmas or whatever the most vanilla, like, underpowered, like, benchmark thing is, you can make those exciting. But the reason that they don't look exciting long term, especially if the premise of the set is that I'm never going to draft or play limited in the set. So this thing is just like fodder for me, is the, the premise that. 
there are just too many overpowered cards. Like you just play all the rares, all the majestics, all the legendaries, or super rares, whatever you know your game chooses to call them. Uh, and those things get drowned out and forgotten. And funnily enough, like a good side effect of rotations are is that those weaker cards get brought up to the surface, but the ones that rotate never do, which is kind of sad. There are ways around it, but I don't really think any game's really done it. Like if I were to fix it, I would probably have each deck has a certain amount of power level points that you could have. And the high rarity cards or more powerful cards obviously worth more points. And that way, if like a, a lower um, point value card gets printed, we're like, whoa, I finally got like a low point, you know, cheap, efficient two drop or something like that. I don't have to waste like an extra two points to play like the one that's a little bit better. Then I can squeeze the power somewhere else. Like you feel good for playing a weaker card, which I think is a exciting thing to try out. So in your personal opinion, based on the limited amount of cards we've seen through Lorcana, do you think that these vanilla cards we've seen so far, like you know, you've got the one the classic one drop, two strength, two willpower, uh, you know, two drop, so on and so forth, they're kind of on a pretty streamlined curve. Do you think those cards will elicit the same kind of emotions or do you feel like they might be a little bit too generic like what are your thoughts on these you know vanilla cards that people are trying to figure out you know is this good is this bad is it mediocre like you know what do we do with these Uh, i think given like how it's being released this is the most exciting point they will ever be right they are Mm. the baseline they're the benchmark um playing the game on like tabletop or however you want to print and play at the moment before it's released those cards are as exciting as they could possibly be uh, without context of you know whether the you know glimmer um, type matters, whether fish or anything else matters. Yeah, I think they will fade over time. But uh, now, if they're the first cards you play with, they will have some nostalgic value in the future, perhaps. But I don't really have much hope that those cards are going to be relevant in the future. Sasha, I think you mentioned that your worry, if there was a worry for Lorcana, was the resource system. Is that right? My worry would be the power level of inkless cards surpassing okay. all the inked cards that the decks are just kind of mathematically proven that you should just be playing a low amount of ink cards which effectively boils down to match of the gathering of do i draw lands do i not draw lands as like the right win, last oh match. i see what you're saying yeah so you the most efficient thing to do to play a certain number of, of cards you can ink I, and then in that case it comes if you draw those cards or not right correct so is it more is it more interesting than to have a wide variety of cards that can be inked but then the issue there is is that that's the tough thing to balance. As soon as I saw inkless cards, I kind of saw this kind of a maybe not really a red flag, but just kind of a concern of like if the inked cards, uh, you know, outshine the inkless cards too much or too often, then why would I want to take the risk of playing the inkless cards? It goes both ways. Right. So they, they, they I never. I mean, I don't think we've discussed that also. That is look at look at look at this having having a game designer on our <laughs> podcast is great because I never not, I never thought about that, but that is going to be another balancing point. My my concern also has to do with the resource system, but I have more concern about them going in a way like Magic goes to dual lands, right? Like they have they have cards that dual ink or something of that nature. Um, and I hope they don't go down. I, don't, I just again, I'm not a game designer. I just play these things. I love them, but that seems to go down the sound the same route where you're always going to be playing the most efficient resources you can right so unless they unless those two resource two color inks uh have a big a big drawback everybody's going to be chasing them right everybody's gonna be playing them so i i i don't want them i hope they don't go down a path where they try to make the resources more efficient than they already are going to be that's that's total speculation totally i think it's kind of robust as it is i actually adore the resource system but there are some bugaboos like 
you know, the inkless cards. I don't like the idea that you're choosing what cards you're not playing with this game. Uh, I'm not sure if you followed me on Twitter or my mm-hmm. other ramblings beforehand, but I really loved the idea early on while I was speculating that the game would be best two out of three and whatever cards that are played are eliminated and you continue with the rest of your deck and the cards you put in the Whoa. bottom. Oh, that's really crazy. That's cr- that's, I like that though. Uh, that should definitely be a format if that's not going to be the rule. that's not the rules but that's, that sounds awesome uh just because i i hate the idea of the player being in the spot of choosing oh i don't want to play with this card this turn or this game because i put it in my deck so my intent was to play with it but now i'm choosing not to which is a feels bad but it is good tension for choosing which cards you do play but it comes at that counter cost i wish there was just a way to make both worlds happy this is more of an op thing but i think you may have something to say about it going off what your last point was i think best two or three is great for these games but again as a, somebody that's a judge for these types of games i don't know how you know like it it needs to be a fairly simple game to get three games in in a in a relatively quick time period, right? If we're talking about hour long rounds, right? Like it needs to be the complexity of the game needs to be pretty low to get two, three potentially three games in the hour, right? So I don't that always is a concern for me. Like I remember I remember years ago playing um, Netrunner. And Netrunner had that system where you had to play <laughs> both sides. And it just even I mean, I, I had played quite a bit of Netrunner and it always felt terrible because you never had enough time to finish your, your tournament games really um, where you always feel like you're rushing so it's just you know i i think theoretically i love the thought of like having the two of two or three game system but i've never i don't i don't i don't know any game besides magic again which i i consider magic just again like maybe you said because it's been around so long and we know the game so well that the complexity level is 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 not, is not that bad to get those games in um, but for a lot of these games, they're just starting out with new rule sets. It just seems so hard to get three potential games in an hour. Yeah, I think that's very fair criticism. We won't really know until um, OP brings up uh, what is the average, you know, skill level age of the audience is playing. Is best two out of three maybe only at high level competitive events? Um, I don't know. Like, I think I'm with you. Ideally, you should be able to play a fun competitive game within one match or just one round or whatever you want to call it and move on from there. What is best two out of three even give you it gives you the option to sideboard but uh fab kind of solved that with like pre-boarding by signaling to your opponent what the matchup is with the heroes volcana you don't really signal anything at the start of the game you don't have a character you play as you don't right. show any resources to start with so it kind of makes sense to be best two out of three because if something goes wrong then um it goes wrong or they choose to not have a sideboard and then you have to dedicate some risk of um, you know silver bullets like maybe that's a space for them to go with inkless cards a lot of powerful inkless cards are silver bullets so they're not relevant in every matchup so when you add them to your deck they are a massive risk like that is one way they can go about it yeah what's pokemon do, do you, you guys know what pokemon does for those is it two or three i believe uh pokemon is two out of three i believe sideboard. it's within 60 minutes you, there is si- no sideboard as much okay. as I know. Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic are the only cards that you are, are allowed to sideboard. I'm still I'm still leaning to again, and, and, and Sasha, we didn't talk about this ahead of time. My hope again, like, I have Fab already, so I don't need a super complex tournament game. My hope is that this game is something that my I have a nine year old daughter. I want her to get in the card games with me. So I, I hope she likes Disney. So that's my hope is that this is a game that she can play right. Um, so I'm not really looking at it for the tournament sense. I know there will be people I think Sugu is really excited about the tournament scene for the game, um, <laughs> which is great. You know, and I'm, we're, we're all going to Gen Con. Um, so everybody has different goals with every game they play. So I'm not 
you know, as interested in the in the tournament play. But if they do do that, I want to make sure that it's going to be in a way that's accessible to you know. I think this game's going to appeal to younger younger people. Young, you know. Oh yeah. I, I, I hope it's a, a game that my daughter wants to take. Out. I hope it's a game a lot of nine, ten year olds want to have their first TCG playing. So um, I don't. I my my overall hope is that the tournament rules aren't prohibitive of that experience. So, so Chris, it's really cool to hear that you're interested in playing with your daughter. Have you actually played any print and play with her, or does she know about Lorcana at all? Like, what's no, the we, I've t- I've talked to her about Lorcana. Um, we've we've been watching some Disney movies. I don't. I, another thing, I don't know that Sugi and uh, Skiff, our other other podcast uh, member have been playing a lot of the, the print and play and been playing a, a lot online. I am, I'm less interested in that because I don't want to quote unquote tank myself, you know, with a carpool that's not complete. I don't want to, you know, I've heard people already say they don't, they don't like some of the, the, the mechanics and some of the way the cards interact and I want to just wait till I have, I have all the cards. So um, historically we've played, me and my daughter have played uh, Pokemon. She likes that. I, I wouldn't say she's passionate about it. She doesn't come, come say, let's go play Pokemon dad, you know? So I'm, I'm, and again, I don't try to, you know, I don't know if you have kids or not, but I, if you, if you, if you really get into, you know, try to push a kid to do something, they're going to go the opposite way. So I've always, with all the game stuff, I've always just kind of left it at her level about what she wants to do and when she wants to do it. That's really cool. I, I don't have kids, sorry, but uh, have you ever asked her what would she want out of a card game? Like, does Lokana kind of align with that, do you think? Or I will now. I have not, I have not, I have not asked her. <laughs> uh, we've talked about, you know, what's her thoughts about, you know, obviously what she likes and doesn't like about Pokemon. And what appeals to her, you know, she she's really generally, historically, she's been really into artwork, which I think makes a lot of sense for, you know, a kid her age. Um, mm-hmm. Like how the cars look is really important to her. She likes the shiny cards. She likes, she likes, like when we, were, when we were playing more, she would want me to build a deck around certain characters she liked, right? And then I think Pokemon's great in that way that you can see that characters actually evolve. And she would, she would, that was like, that was the most appealing thing to her is actually like being able to like grow the character up in front of her and then get more powerful. But she, again, she's, she's into all the, I don't know any kid that's not into Disney movies. So, um, you know, I've shown her some, some of the cards. I told her I'm really excited about the game and hopefully that she wants to play something. And she said, yeah, I'll play with you, dad. You know, always to play Katie. Um, she's still the age where she, she still wants to hang out with me, which I appreciate. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Saying that you, you, you just said uh, a lot of kids love Disney movies. What do you think about like the, franchises used in the first set and how a lot of them are kind of boomery for lack of a better word sure i mean there's moana which i which i appreciate that they got and and frozen so those are those are you know but i guess generally they have gone back um to some old school disney stuff which is which is interesting choice i don't i don't know what that like why that choice is made you know obviously i guess if they were were going to make it it makes more sense to do it in the early sets right and i'm not sure how the other releases are going to go if they're going to follow more of a you know, more of a standard set of, of time period of movies that were released or thematically, if they were like, you know, maybe a princess set or uh, maybe a Mickey's mouse set. I don't, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to see like where the, the next sets are going to go. Cause it is really a hodgepodge of a lot of different eras of Disney in this first set. I, I, I am excited that they have frozen in Moana because without those two there, I don't know that my daughter would be really interested in it. There's Cinderella, I guess mm-hmm. too, um, which, you know, some, she, she knows, she knows some classic Disney. Our little Lilo stitches in there too, I guess. But you know, a lot of some of the other stuff, some of the early '90s stuff, she has no clue about, right? Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure 
what their thought process is there. Would you have, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, no, I'm just trying to get insight on your end. Cause uh, I, I don't have like any like, yeah. super young cousins, siblings, nephews, nieces, or anything like that to gauge off. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Cause like I would have guessed uh, Moana was probably right on the edge. Right. But uh, like something like Cinderella, I wouldn't have guessed to be relevant. No. I mean, well, I will. Okay. I guess I will say, I, I will say it is relevant. I, I don't, I mean, at least in my family, we, we definitely watched, Classic Disney movies, so like Cinderella, what's the most, 101 Dalmatians, like so you you go through, and I guess I guess Disney Plus helps with this too, right? Like so, mm. like on a Friday night, we'll just put on, you know, if she's she's watching Moana, or she, she was she actually was really more a Frozen kid. She watched Moana a few times, but she really like Frozen was the one when she was like I think four years old. She watched on repeat over and over and over again. So that was mm-hmm. one that that we that we had that she had memorized. Um, so she's really excited to, to see that, whatever the girl's name, Elsa, in the, in the game. But I will say that I think, you know, as a parent of my age, you know, who know who's familiar with the, the old school Disney movies, you see that on Disney Plus, you just throw it on because you know it's a good a good movie, right? So like you know, Lion King, she's watched Lion King. Um, and now they have even those remakes coming out. So, but again, it's just the characters they've chosen and it, there doesn't seem to be a, a cohesiveness to it. Does that make sense? You know, like it doesn't, I, I don't know. I would have expected to be, you know, if they were to do something like this, I would have expected to be like a, a set of like a time period of Disney movies, right? Like that, that kind of all work together to make a, to make a, some kind of story, um, rather than taking a little bits here and a little bit there of, of these properties. If they're if they're going to do that each set, I think they're going to it's going to be kind of confusing a little bit. That's just my personal take on it, but I don't I don't know that I don't know that that she really cares as much. She just wants to try to find search out the characters she's interested in and and play with them, right? Totally. Like I would amend my uh, previous statement from relevant to resonant. And sure. there's something that you said, a little snippet, which I think would make like Ryan Miller's like eyes light up or a lot of people at Ravenberger's eyes light up, which was how you said uh, on Disney Plus, you know, it's a good movie. So we're going to chuck it on. Right. I really think that Lokana is going to be pretty similar, which is like people know that it's a safe, like experiential game. Like it's built mm-hmm. off this like other games that they've played. I can play this with my kids. No worries. No stress. Not going to be confused. They've simplified. Like it's effectively dumbed down magic, right? And, right. Yeah, and which is great. I think that's exactly what no, they want to be doing. Yeah. yeah. That, and that's and that, again, that's what appeal. When I saw this, I, you know, I, and I think before we even knew the rules, you know, when we see the cards, you see the the layout of the cards. The it's fairly simple, you know, as as, as card games go. It's the the art. The art's been great. I, I love the every art that, that they've displayed so far. Really eye catching. So, um, you know, even even the layout of the cards really leans to that. Like I like to say, my, my first TCG, right? Like I, I hope a lot of kids that this will be their memory of like the first time they got into card games and the first time they got to collect it, and the first time they got to play playing going to a tournament, maybe. I, th- I think it is magic light and I, th- and I think that's fine i think that that's what i that's what i was looking for for my daughter and i hope she likes it i hope i could you know you know we, she wants to go to tournaments with me maybe maybe we'll go over to new zealand come meet up with you play some lorcana it'd be, it'd be great <laughs> that would be great if they distributed it here but uh, there's no distribution in new zealand for that's crazy period in the future as we can tell chris i also just want to say just how much more eloquent you are than me i'm saying boomery <laughs> i'm saying dumb down you say old school you say magic light like I need to hang out with you more. I need to improve my lexicon. <laughs> Whatever you want to come on, man. We we would try to do that. Sugi trained me right right over the months. Until, <laughs> until, until, until Sugi will talk about he, he gets hungry sometimes and he'll talk about he'll say things he's not supposed to say. So hopefully hopefully he ate dinner tonight. Did you eat, did you eat I, dinner? Tonight? I did indeed eat dinner. Okay, the the hanger is not here tonight. You're safe. <laughs> 
But I mean, like that's that's kind of the cool thing about Lorcana, and I think you guys are right in the fact that not only were the Ravensburger team trying to create a fun game, but something parents can do with children mm-hmm. and uncles and aunts can do with nieces and nephews, and a game that kind of bridges multiple generations, both in the game theme and the potentiality to introduce family members to new IPs. Because I've heard the story a million times from parents where, you know, they're talking about playing Lorcana and, you know, maybe the child or family member doesn't know what a Moana is. And they're like, oh, let's let's watch the movie. Right. And they go, oh, my gosh, that's that card. That's that. Hey, hey, card. No, it's the other way around, sweetheart. The Hey Hey card is based on this movie, and it just kind of synergizes the the TCG analog experience with the visual entertainment medium that's being uh, digested. And I'm I'm really liking how it is actually bringing people and families and players together on so many different accords. There's tons of people who are like, "What's Sergeant Tips from 101 Dalmatians?" I haven't watched that in years. I'm going right. to go watch that tonight. Oh, it's so cool. I mean, like, I, I actually watched 101 Dalmatians the same week they showed off Sergeant Tibbs. And I was like, man, I literally just watched that movie. That is awesome because I love that character. And now seeing him as a card. Ooh, I mean, sure, he's not the flashiest thing in the world. He's not, you know, full of text and special effects. But it's that classic character, you know, saluting the the sergeant, ca- sorry, saluting the captain, getting ready to go save the puppies. Oh, man, it just evokes a lot of nostalgia. And I think that's cool. That's really cool about Lorcana. That's not something a lot of other trading card games can do because they just don't have that catalog of years and years and years of history in in film and media sasha we never asked you what's your what's your favorite disney character or movie favorite disney character like i i adore stitch a lot like i think it's kind of funny um (laughs) hey hey is also kind of a classic like instantly I think Hey Hey and I share a lot of uh, similar behavioral patterns. <laughs> Whoa, that, that, that says a lot. Yeah, I mean, you put some, um, you know, nuts in front of me. I'm probably just gonna, like, you know, put them in my hand and just eat them over a few hours. But um. I'm sure there's a theory. I don't know this, but I'm sure there's a theory out there about uh, Hey Hey was the most important character in Moana. I'm sure there's a there's a Disney theory, right? There always is one about the the little character being the most important. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Possibly. I mean, like if Moana is like a um, Lord of the Rings light. Um, movie. Hey, hey, he's definitely Gollum, right? Like, right, right, for sure. I love that connection, man. Hey, 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 Gollum, right? It's kind of awkward. Ooh. That makes Gollum look way worse than he really is. <laughs> I mean, hey, hey, he does swallow like the the heart of Tafiti at some point. Like, he has some ulterior motives. No one knows what's going on. <laughs> Or is he's hey, secretly hiding behind those lazy eyes, that dead, that empty stare. I bet he's, hey, he's really Tom Bombadil, right? Because the heart of Fiti didn't have any effect on him. True. So, oh, some the deep, deep cuts. cuts Tom Bombadil. Oh man, this is a Lord of the Rings show now. Here we go, baby. That's a that's a deep cut. Well, what have I done? <laughs> Boy, <I'm not. laughs> Tom was the best character in Lord of the Rings by far, and I was very disappointed he wasn't in the movies. Okay, I know it's not Lord, Lord of the Rings. No, podcast, it's but. fair. Yeah, I did. I did love a good Tom Bombadil and Goldenberry. I mean, dude had, right. had had a hot wife. He it was a bard. He gave out magical weapons, and he was more powerful than the ring. I don't know how you can, you know, how can you not love Tom Bombadil? But whatever. 
Well, if you didn't read the book, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> That's a good point. You might not know about them, which is unfortunate. I don't know how you how you not how you how you cannot read Lord of the Rings. There but yes, are those who have not read the That's Lord of the Rings blasphemy? We I did. Just I did. start I, reading it on the show and educate all the listeners. We should. It just turns into like me what reading a Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I know. <laughs> just like just a page every. It'll just take us about you know thirty years to get through the the first book. Yeah. Um, I wrote a paper sound of Chris's voice. Yeah. I wrote a paper about, cause I read the Cimmerillion obviously. And I thought it's, it's been proven wrong now, but I thought Tom Abadil was a God from in the Cimmerillion. There's a God. I can't remember his name anymore. I think it's Andrew. He's like the bear, the bear God, this big burly dude that chained Melkor up. And I made this, I wrote this paper in high school about that. That was Tom Abadil. But then it came out like 10 years later. Cause I'm old that, um, it really, he has no reaction. He has no relation to anybody else. It's just Tom Bombadil. It's just Tom Bombadil. Well, funny <laughs> that you say that. Like in the Lord of the Rings magic set that's about to be printed, Tom Bombadil's creature type is God Bard. It is, it so, is God. Is yeah. what? He's a God Bard. Oh, is that what they put it as? Yes, sir. So let's kind of pivot away from not necessarily design only questions, but let's talk a little bit about Lorcana proper. So I would love to hear your thoughts based on what we've seen and hear about what you like about Lorcana and what you may or may not like about Lorcana, because we as the podcasters and probably a good majority of the listeners are digesting Lorcana as consumers, players, competitors, but not many of us are designers and, and your your perspective on the cards and your perspective on like tension and eliciting emotion is absolutely fascinating, but it also creates a very interesting proposition where you're looking at the game in a very unique way that I don't think many of us are. So I would love to hear your thoughts on the game uh, in, in your own terms. That's uh, another hard one to answer because perspective is everything here. From a design perspective, from my personal perspective of play, totally different things. And then what value do my answers bring to you and your audience? Uh, What do you want to take away from this? Uh, From a design perspective, I have to kind of try to guess or understand what their goals are. And I think based off their goals, I think they nailed it on the head. I am reserving a lot of judgment until I see the full like card list and Mm -hmm. all the card faces, because just based off what we know, the rule set is very, very streamlined, um, yeah, effective and spectacular if that's the goal. If the result was uh, a little bit more deep cut, uh, then uh, maybe it's not the way to go, but it's really hard to know. But I think that they nailed the design of the rule set on their head. And now it's just the interactions and how explosive or interactive are they going to be. Like Moana, funnily enough, is maybe a problem card because you could just do like some crazy shenanigans and just explode on a single turn. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really hard to know. There are some classic TCG experience, like what does the card that says draw two cards look like? And is that overpowered? Is it pot of greed or is it divination or is it something in between? Yeah, friends from the other side, easily the best card in the game so far. Like I don't think it's even close. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then followed up by the three cost um, Amethyst Maleficent. It's just so funny how draw a card is super powerful, especially in a game where every card is a resource. Uh, Fab has similar problems where uh, draw a card is like very, very over, overpowered because the cards are modular and can do multiple things. In Fab, they can do three things, like be played, be pitched, or defend. In Lorcana, they can do two things. 
So uh, it's still really, really powerful. And also, you know, it's a song, so you can play it for free, which is even crazier. I was, I was going to ask, you know, one, one thing I complain about our previous podcast many times, one thing that strikes me, that just hits me the wrong way, is as far as we know, based on the rules we have so far, you can't look at the cards you've inked. Does that strike you any weird way? Does it, how do you, I guess maybe I shouldn't taint it. How do you feel about that that rule if that is the rule that you don't know you, you know obviously when you pick a card from your hand and put it on your ink you'll know then but you can't go check that card and, and assumably from what we've been able to tell so far of a card you know there are various cards mechanics that will put a card top of your deck into your ink well you won't be able to look at that card and know what it is uh, i love that you brought that up um this is a very blurred line from like designer standpoint but uh i kind of classify your bucket memory as like a dexterous ability um, mm-hmm. it's not something everyone can do uh, it's not something that you can work with the information you have presented for you, in front of you. Some people would argue that it is a skill that should be in card games. I think it takes away from the fun of card games because mm-hmm. uh, it punishes more than it um, rewards and in a way where you're not focusing on the game itself. You're focusing on remembering like you know a few things. Right. Uh, and I, I think the idea of card games is to not be biased to dexterity. Kind of a weird definition for dexterity for me that memory uh, management is placed there yeah just the result is kind of the same not everyone can do it um so i I think it's not the fun most fun thing some cards like one step ahead or the blue mickey mouse not being able to look at those cards that are face down i really don't like that Uh, i want to know what i'm not playing with this game should i be playing towards a certain out or not otherwise i'm adding blind risk and chance and maybe change my behaviors for some other variable which i necessarily shouldn't be doing so uh yeah so i don't really particularly like that aspect to answer your question maybe maybe if i'm more pc than than you you are you're definitely more designer speak than me because you said that perfectly and that's that's the way i felt (laughs) over these past few months is it's just that you know again like again i think fab to me just generally overall the whole time is, is more complex game and and a lot of and fab doesn't play that game of you have well i guess they play it in a big way where you, that you could pitch you can memorize your pitch deck right that is not the same as this because mm-hmm. you know in, in my opinion i think that this is, is much different pitch deck is, is obviously a skill it's a it's a long-term way you know that some people use to to do well at the game i don't think it's necessary you could play you could play a deck in fab that shuffles your deck your your um your your main deck up every other turn right so and still do well um so obviously some decks like that mechanic but here the again i think it's kind of what you went about earlier that you're prevented from doing it as far as we know i hope, I hope, I hope we're wrong i hope that's not the ruling it sounds like it is a ruling but it really just strikes me the wrong way that i'm prevented from looking at some cards and I might be potentially punished for not remembering that I put a card down there that I might need to, to, to enact my end game. Right. So it, it strikes me wrong. Do you want to take the other side, Sugi? Well, it, it kind of actually invokes a different question on my end. And I'd love to hear Sasha's response. If you think that card games should have less things to memorize, then would a superior card game or a more fun card game be more simplistic in nature so that it's more focused on like player agency and eliciting emotions versus remembering what you have and haven't done and playing to outs and trying to guesstimate what will and won't happen in over the course of the game? Uh, I think it's all based on the framing of the game. Like playing to outs and planning and strategy and calculating risk is definitely a core skill in card games that just needs to be there to actually kind of evoke like, you know, a path to mastery. Uh, to just quickly touch on to what you said, Chris, 
the reason why, well, I'm just going to say that you won't be able to look at the cards that are face down is because it negates the level for cheating for putting cards back to your hand if you actually like look at cards face up, face down. Uh, when I was speculating on the rules of the game, I thought that Floodborne cards would be able to be able to play from your resource row, uh, your ink um, But uh, I don't think that's going to be the case. Oh, that's um, a cool idea. That yeah, would... and that idea was mainly just to like you know nip that in the bud. I'm going to only can play cards from my resource or my ink well once I have no cards in my hand. That way there's huh. no chance of cheating. Uh, of like putting cards like into my hand from my inkwell, so that's why I believe that's not going to be the case. But um, interesting, yeah. I think I, we've we've discussed the cheating aspect too, and I, and I feel and I don't know that the rule necessarily helps with that because then it just has me again watching my opponent. You always watch your opponent again. Like we, we play, we all play these games for years, and you got to be aware, situation situationally aware, of what your opponent's doing and what you're doing even during your really hard turns, and you know making sure that. There, there are bad actors out there that aren't cheating. But again, you know, it, it motivates them to take a sneak, you know, at their at the where their resources are. Again, I don't know where we're going to keep mm-hmm. our resources. They're probably at the lower end of the table. So are they, you know, is that that's another thing as a judge. I have to be aware of that. If that inevitably gets flipped over, those cards get flipped over for one reason or another. Those cards fall on the ground. And then they're visible to the to, to either opponent, to either the, the active player or the opponent. You know, those are all going to be judge rulings that become an issue at, at these tournaments. So I don't know. It just, it's, 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 it's a feel bad for me. I don't understand what it adds to the game. You know, we've talked about in the past a complexity budget uh, for every game has it like mm-hmm. just so much how complex you can make it. And this feels like it's making it more complex, not less complex. And, and I don't know what they're gaining from it. So to quickly answer that, the thing that they gain the most is on the board, you separate what cards are in play and what cards aren't in play. If the cards added to Inkwell were face up, there could be easy confusion or mixing about of what cards are actually in play and what cards aren't in play. So that is the the major reason why the cards are put face down. Also, Suki, you said um, about memory management. Kind of had a point there. Uh, Could you just kind of refresh your question? We kind of like deviated there a little bit. So I I think the question that you were referencing was basically TLDR. Do you think that memory management in a trading card game facilitates fun because some people think it is some people think it doesn't uh you know this is a great example chris doesn't i do but is it like a good or a bad thing does it depend on the game state because you know you've already talked about these core fundamentals these tendencies do you think that a game such as lorcana making you at this point in the, the game with the rules making you have to remember what's been played. Is that a bad thing? Is that negative? Does that detract from the game experience? Uh, It could add or detract. I think the major thing to check for is the impact of the memory management. Remembering what cards you've played, you can check your discard pile, right? Um, Then eliminating what cards are left in your deck. That's like a memory thing of what was my deck list? What did I bring today compared to what's on the table? I keep bringing it back, but the Flesh and Blood... Uh, memory management is really important for knowing how many of a thing you have left in your deck versus what things your opponents played. Funnily enough, I kind of broke the game at the first constructed tournament for Flesh and Blood, where uh, to hack memory management for like you know sixty minute long matches where there's a lot of things to keep track of. Uh, I would sort my graveyard and my opponent's graveyard every single turn after every single card was played, so I had like a perfect mind map of all the 
you know, resources and remaining threats. Because in Fab, instead of having a board state where the threats are, your board state is effectively the cards in your deck, which is where Chris was talking about pitch stacking. It's not necessarily the order of the cards, but just the contents of the cards is usually enough to kind of dictate the outcome of a game in longer matches, especially with control decks. But yeah, I think it's all based off the impact of the outcome of how important it is to remember a few things. Like if we just play like an entire game, you know, uh, characters do things against each other, but I remembered the 13th card that you played and I win the game, that's not very fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So now, now I'll make this argument against Chris because I do agree in some capacity it can be annoying trying to remember what everything everyone has played. But I've noticed when playing casually where you're not trying to play a super competitive deck, you're not trying to be in a super competitive mindset, you're not grinding out games, you're just playing for fun. Most people don't seem to care because you're just having fun playing down a Mickey Mouse or a Rockstar Stitch and seeing what these cards do. The only time it's actually kind of mattered is when we're prepping for, say, you know, the Gen Con tournament. Anything that's actually relative to quote unquote high level, professional level, competitive level, that's when you kind of care to pay attention. Otherwise, if you're not grinding out a match, I don't think it matters and I don't seem to care about what you inked. Do you think that's important for Lorcana since the designers have been very specifically targeted on? the game is not necessarily meant to be a hyper-competitive game. It's just meant to be a fun game for everyone to play. I think it's not important. Like, just to kind of put into context, should a competitive game be fun? Is competition fun because of the process or the result? I think a lot of competitive players are some zero mindset based off the results. They don't really care about if they got to do the cool thing if they didn't win. Yeah, that's why I can't be competitive because I need to do the cool thing. I will. <laughs> that's why. That's why. That's why I lose. I bring Kano to a real tournament. I can't, you know, Kano can't 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 win <laughs> generally um, over a course of eight Swiss rounds. He can he can spike every now and then, but yeah, that's again. It's just and just to be clear, like, you know, in my mind, when I think about this game, of course, the cards, your resources are face down. It, it just seems so strange to me. That I can't, you know check and see that is that my that i already put three mickey the adventure down there and so if i if i ink my last i don't even I can't remember if he's ink or not but if, if i ink my if i ink this last one is that all four of my copies for the whole game you know it just seems so strange to me i just don't game. think you're gonna care when you play with your sure. daughter and, I, and, I, and I, I agree with you i won't care then it's more and and, and, and and again personally if i'm not caring about the you're right why why, why shut up Bates? if you don't if you, if you don't care about tournaments why do you why do you care it just i guess that's the part of me that come out for like the, like the the judging of these types of games and it seems to go against what what their goal of the game overall is which is to have my first tcg have a you know i, I assume pretty pretty wide ranging you know op that goes wide instead of going goes top heavy right yeah so it's like it's, it feels it feels like it's just going to have some bad feels and I, I don't and, I, and again i don't i don't know what the game gets out of that you put you can put the game's cards face down i should be able to check what i have down there just like if, in fab you could always check each other's graveyard you could no longer sasha as you know you could no longer reorder the graveyards to Sorry. a certain way that might be because of you uh it sounds like so you can no longer you can no, you can longer order them because that would that would slow down the game quite a bit but you could always that's all public information that's that's public information the banished zone is public information it again it, 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 in that game it hasn't 
we're really talking about, you know, best of one games. It, it hasn't come to the point where it slows down that game because, you know, people, while the person's doing their turn, you could check the graveyard and, and see what's in there. Um, it just it's, it gives them that knowledge that what they have left their deck and uh, they can make the best plays based on that general knowledge, right? So I don't know. It might be because of some dissonance between one step ahead and the blue Mickey compared to like let it go. Because mm-hmm. let it go, you know what's being put into the inkwell where with the other two, you don't know. It's a mystery. Right. So you instantly have the curiosity of like, oh, now I'm begging the question, I want to check. Compared to beforehand, you already know what's going in. So that memory management isn't necessarily crucial because you've made that risk already. Right. Yeah. I think it's. I think it's definitely. You know, if it was, I'm, I'm not as worried. So you say I'm not as worried about the cards I'm putting down there. That's that's not because yes, you are. And as you said, Sasha, you've already made a decision that you you don't want that card this game. So that's not as big of an issue. I guess it's going to be more about these cards that put the card automatically in there, and that changes the whole content of my deck, which I have no mm-hmm. way of knowing what's going to happen legally. Totally. And- Totally. And I agree with you on that one, Chris. I, I absolutely dislike just placing one of my cards face down because I don't know if that's removal. I don't know if that's a bomb card. I don't right. know if that's a one drop that I just don't care about. So that I agree. Like, I'm totally on board with you. But I don't think you have an invalid point. I, I do agree there are points in the game where it is annoying that I can't check because everything else is public information. The cards in your deck, cards in your hand, the number of cards in your inkwell, your graveyard, like all of those things I know. And technically, I've seen most, if not all of the cards you've played into your inkwell, minus if you're doing like the ramp cards that place a card face down where you neither person knows. Mm-hmm. So like logically, it makes sense you would want to check to verify, oh, hey, they have, you know, three copies of this card. Okay, so right. then their odds of drawing that fourth copy are low. And if they're not running a fourth copy, then it's zero. So uh, it's kind of a combination of what Sasha was saying, where competitive players want just perfect information. We don't really care about the excitement. We don't care about the thrill. We, we we just want to win at whatever, you know, necessary cost without cheating, of course. But that's why I was saying in the games I've been playing where it's just casual for funsies. I'm not tracking what they're inking. I don't even care what I'm inking. I'm just having a good time and seeing what happens, and I'm kind of going along for the ride. So I know you're not going to be playing hyper-competitively, so it's just interesting that... That's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if the thing you're afraid of is necessarily going to impact you all that much. When they when they ink, maybe that's a part of missing too. When they when you ink a card, are you supposed to show your opponent? Is that what you're saying? What you you saying? must, yeah. You have to okay. reveal the card and say, "Hey, I'm going to take this card, flip it face down, and turn it into okay. a a resource." So that's that's a way, that that was a concern I had about. So I missed that rule because that is a concern I had as a judge about how you know because you you can put cards down there you weren't supposed to put down there, right? Yeah, you must reveal the card so that you and your opponent can verify you didn't play an illegal card. So like if you were to reveal like a Hades, which is an inkless card. And I go, hey, I'm putting this in my inkwell. Be like, wait, wait, you cannot do that. That is an illegal play. That doesn't count. Oh, okay, my bad. So technically, as long as you don't play any ramp cards, both players know what all the face down cards are. Okay. Or should, if they remember. <laughs> hmm. the, the memory game. Yeah. That's okay. The that 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 that's that last part is definitely something I missed, and I don't know that we've discussed that specifically. So that that makes it a little better from the thought about judging these types of tournaments. Yeah, yeah, there there are some interesting judge predicaments, uh, but we're not getting into that. Let's nope. ask a couple less questions and then get on out of here because we're we're past the hour point. Uh, Sasha, I would love for you to share any tips for people who are listening and go, I would like to be a car designer. But I don't know how to do such a thing. What would you recommend? Are there like books or classes or, uh, you know, any kind of things that people should pursue or study to, you know, 
design cards or games professionally? That's a very niche path to take without like any formal education or pathway to actually get into it. Because how many studios are even hiring specific like graduates of certain programs? I, I don't know any, to be honest. I think the best thing that you can do is follow it from a point of passion where asking yourself, why do I want to create cards or games? And for me personally, the answer is so that I can share the joy of like fun and this experience with other people and, you know, kind of selfishly with my own like twist or name to it, because I feel like I have something to add to that realm that hasn't existed yet. And maybe um, whoever's listening to that this resonates, they do too, which is awesome. Like games are fun experiences that we should share with each other and, you know, bring new um, memories and, the countless people I've met for games, you guys, I just met what an hour and nine minutes ago and I feel like we're hitting it off and I've had a tons of fun, but the premise is just do stuff like create a custom card for your favorite game. Like create your own game. If you want with simple, complex, whatever, it's probably going to be bad. Like I know a hundred out of a hundred to one ideas that I have are bad. And even the hundred and first one's probably bad. It just hasn't been play tested yet. Um, <laughs> You just have to do stuff. It's just how it goes. And just have fun with the process. Don't take it too seriously. Because it's a it's a medium of entertainment. The second that it's serious, you can kind of see that it's dry and just not very fun. That's just my personal experience. Mm. I have a question for Sasha as we wrap up here. Is there anything you can share with us about your upcoming projects? Anything? They're going to be awesome. I, I, I didn't really <laughs> that's, that's, that's something You shared something. There you go. You were, I, 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 I want to give you a chance to plug, plug yourself if you want to plug yourself. I don't know. I, mean, I don't sure. know what, stage, um, what stage you're at. Yeah. Uh, just follow me on Twitter. Like I'll okay. post updates when I have updates. I like to muse about game design or like hint towards like the direction I'm going with the philosophies that I've kind of cemented for myself. And, and yeah, like um, the next three months I'm overseas visiting family because I haven't seen them since the start of the pandemic. So I'm taking some R&R there and then I'm moving back to Australia, currently in New Zealand, and then going all in. Like I've set the foundations and now we just got to execute. I'm really excited. Nice. nice. That's awesome, man. It's been, again, it's been awesome talking to you. I, I knew I knew your name obviously from Fab, but it's nice to meet you and, and talk, have a discussion today. Thank you. Likewise, it's been a massive pleasure. Yeah, we're going to follow you and make sure to help, you know, let other people know about your projects because, man, oh, I love the way you look at games. It is absolutely, it's just, it's mind boggling because every person looks at games differently. But designers are some of my favorite people to talk to because you just see that matrix code in such a unique fashion that it just, it gets me really excited because it's so different. I'm glad that you are. Uh, for me, I consider it a curse. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could go back to the period of naivety and ignorance, but uh, I, I'm glad that you're finding it exciting. It's like the behind the scenes of like a movie, like your favorite movie. It just ru- ru- ruins the magic a little bit. But uh, the magic that you can give is so much more that I think it's worth it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And before we get on out of here, uh, where can people find you? So you mentioned your Twitter. You mentioned the projects you're working on. Are there any specific channels or social media paths you want to tell people to follow you so that if they've enjoyed this episode, they can keep in touch with all of your musings and all the stuff that you're putting hard work into? Yeah, uh, just Twitter for now and then you know, we'll expand off from that. So my Twitter is at Marker Victory, M-A-R-K-O-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. And 
yeah, from then it's going to you know flourish and bloom as I execute towards the later of the year or start of next year. All right. Excellent. Excellent. All right. One last curveball question for fun, and then we are getting on out of here. So what do you think about Star Wars Unlimited? Honestly, pretty hyped despite the FFG, um, you know, <laughs> reputation. Okay, cool. Well, then uh, we'll definitely have to have you come on the show in the future. We'll probably do it after Lorcana comes out because you're going to be offline for a couple months, and that's good. You definitely need to get some rest. And then when you come back and after you move, we'll chat about Lorcana, maybe some Star Wars Destiny, maybe some Flesh and Blood. I think there's a new set coming out uh, by the time you'll be back on the show, maybe two. So lots of really cool content. but. Sasha, it is is a blessing and a privilege to have you come on the show. Thank you so very much for your time and your insight into uh, just design in general and the uh, the really interesting perspective. I think you really hit the nail on the head about you know evoking emotion and creating a sense of tension because uh, you're right. If there's no tension, the game is boring, and if there's no emotion, the game is also boring. Um, so, do you have any last thoughts or words of wisdom you want to share before we get on out of here? Uh yeah. Um- be loyal fans to these guys. They're awesome. They're tons of fun. Um, <laughs> stick around. Like, I'm excited to be back. I'm really appreciated that you invited me. Talking about games is like the best thing other than playing them. And when mm. you're playing them, you're pretty much talking about them in a different language with your opponent or whoever mm. you're with on the table. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really appreciate it, guys. I can't wait for the future. Absolutely. All right, everybody, we are getting on out of here. If you enjoy the show, follow us on Twitter and YouTube at LorconaCast. We will see everyone next time. And remember, Ohana, which means nobody gets behind, nobody gets forgotten. Just like your wheels always getting I'm so 